Praise the Lord. Usually there's no applause for <laughs> announcements, but that was nice. Okay, praise the Lord. Okay, open up your Bibles to Acts 2, 5 through 21. Thank you so much for joining us. It's wonderful to be here together. If you're joining us online, you'll see the passage on your screen at home. If you're joining us here in person, you'll see it behind me. But Acts 2, 5 through 21. This is God's word. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude, the sound meaning the rushing of the coming of the Spirit, like rushing wind. At this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear each of us in his own native language, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said they are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words, for these men are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel, and in the last days they shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Amen. Let's pray. Father, you truly are holy, Lord, and you are also truly near. So you are here with us. And Lord God, we know that you are a God that speaks. You speak continuously and repeatedly and you tell us things that we must hear in order to have eternal life in order to live for you and so lord god we pray that you would speak through this word that you would father god open up my mouth so that lord i may speak only what you have for us today and anything else that you would delete it from my mind and everyone's minds here and i pray that every heart here would open up themselves wide with faith to receive whatever you have so we thank you so much, Lord, as we gather here to hear how you launched the church and the global gospel movement, that we could be a part of this. Father God, may we be a part of it. It's such a privilege. Father, use this church to be witnesses for you this year and in the years ahead. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, in eight, uh, I'm sorry, in 1543, I just messed up right out of the gate. <laughs> in 1543, a Polish astronomer published what would become his greatest life work, and it was called On the Revolutions of the Heavenly Spheres. And prior to that publication of that work, astronomers and clergymen and philosophers and the majority of people in Europe, they did not believe what was written in this work. 
but they believed that the earth was the center of the universe. And they believed that the sun and the other heavenly bodies actually revolved around the earth. And that was a very deeply held belief that would not go away easily until it was challenged with evidence. But once the evidence came out in this work and it was examined, it couldn't be denied. The earth was indeed not the center of the universe and it actually revolved around the sun. And so for us, we're all thinking, duh, we all know this. But back then, that was radical and it was revolutionary. And this new perspective on reality really launched a revolution in the sciences. And it paved the way for other advances in the sciences like Newtonian physics. All these other things flowed out of that. And the revolution I'm talking about is the Copernican Revolution. You guys have heard of it. And the astronomer that published this work was Nicholas Copernicus. So why in the world am I talking about this now? Well, the reason why is because since the beginning of the year, we've been looking at the book of Acts. This is the year of witness, and we're going to be studying Acts the entire year. And when the promised spirit was finally poured out upon the earth in Acts chapter 2, everyone who witnessed it and experienced it had this kind of Copernican change to their reality, to their perspective on reality. And so their view went from us Jews and our covenant with God is the center of the universe. Everything that they knew and they believed all revolved around that fact, that we are Jews and we have a covenant with God and it always revolved around that. And then suddenly because of this truly age-shifting event that took place, Pentecost, when the Spirit was poured out, suddenly everything shifted. And their view went from us being the center to now Christ and his work becoming the center. And everyone, not only Jews, but everyone from every tribe, tongue, and language would be drawn to this Christ and their entire existence would revolve around them. So think about how radical that is. Okay, that was a fundamental change to their perspective. Even though the Bible had prophesied it all along. I mean, if they studied their Bibles, they should have known. And yet, they didn't. And so this change came at Pentecost, and then it launched a revolution that is still going strong today. I mean, this is why we're here today, worshiping. We are a part of this revolution. And it all began with the outpouring of the Spirit at Pentecost and the coming of the age of the Spirit. Brothers and sisters, if you don't understand what we are living in, then it's kind of hard to kind of get fired up and be motivated to be witnesses this year. But hopefully as we work through the book of Acts, we're going to truly understand the movie that we're a part of. Nobody gets excited by jumping into the middle of a movie. It's hard to connect with what's going on. And a lot of believers are like that. But Luke, carefully and thoughtfully, being such a good historian and theologian, he really lays out the unfolding drama that we are all a part of. And we are a part of this revolutionary movement, this new coming of the age of the Spirit. And so this is important for us to understand because even Christians today, like the Jews in the book of Acts, we oftentimes have a wrong perspective, don't we? We oftentimes have the wrong center to our lives. So oftentimes when I talk to Christians, and even in my own life, I notice that the center of our lives oftentimes is what we want from God and what we do for God, rather than making the center what God has done for us in Christ, including pouring out his spirit into our lives. 
And so Christians have the wrong center. And because they have the wrong center, they don't let the true center, Christ and what he has done, the outpouring of the Spirit, move them outward to reach all peoples. Kind of like sunlight radiating outward. And so this is my prayer, this is my hope this year, is that we would really have the right center, that we would really understand this unfolding drama that we're a part of, that we would have this kind of Copernican change to our thinking, so that we would go from making ourselves the center, again, what we're doing for God, what we're not doing for God, what we want from God, is it okay to want this from God? I mean, how many of us, we're just filled with these thoughts, right? That is not the center but rather making the center what Christ has done for us and tasting, receiving in a fresh new way his salvation and the outpouring of the Spirit. Brothers and sisters, this is a reality that you can experience today. We talked about this last week, but God is offering it to us. You know, last year, I believe maybe a year and a half ago, we had a series on the Holy Spirit, and I repeatedly said this phrase, to the point where my wife said, you know what, you might want to tone it down a little bit on that, on that little saying. But I kept saying over and over again, we need the Holy Spirit. God the Father is eager to give. You need to ask to receive. Amen? And so that's my prayer is that as we're moving into this new year, the year of witness, as you're learning about this unfolding drama, as we're a part of the age of the Spirit, as you're learning about that, ask for the Spirit. Ask for the Spirit. And so this is my hope. So today what we're going to do is we're going to continue to look at the book of Acts. We're just working through it. And you know what? We're going to be working through it a lot slower than I thought. (laughs) There is just so much here. But we're going to get through it. We're going to work our way. But we're going to be looking at this radical transformation, this Copernican change that happened at Pentecost when the Spirit came. And so last week we looked at the promise of the Spirit's outpouring. Everything that Jesus promised and all of Scripture in fact promised. And then we looked at the evidence. When the Spirit finally comes, what does that look like? What, in fact, actually is it to be baptized in the Spirit? We looked at the evidence of it. And then today, we're going to look at the impact of the coming of the Spirit and then the explanation. We're just going to begin the explanation, which is in Peter's sermon. So the impact of the Spirit's coming is in verses 5 through 14, and then the explanation is in 15 through 21, and actually all the way to 41. You're going to see the explanation. And it's in Peter's explanation that we really see this radical change that the Spirit's coming brought. But we're going to really begin to see this radical transformation to this age by the Spirit um, this week and the next week. So first, the impact. When the Spirit was poured out at Pentecost, there was an immediate impact upon everyone who saw it and experienced it. So look at verses 6 through 11. But it says, at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear each of us in his own native language, Parthians and Medes, Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya, belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. So when the Spirit finally came and was poured out, clearly there was an impact on who? A multitude of people. These were Jews and Gentile converts to Judaism from all over the ancient world. 
They were there to celebrate the festival of Pentecost. Last week, I talked about how Pentecost was the festival of first harvest. It was roughly 50 days after Passover. But on that day, on the day of Pentecost, God chose that day to be the day when the Spirit was poured out. And after the Spirit was poured out, they began to hear, kind of like being at an airport, a chorus of different languages going out from this upper room in the middle of downtown Jerusalem. And they began to hear the gospel in their own native language. And this is what they said. Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? So already, right away, you see that in um, this verse, you see that Jesus' promise in Acts 1.8 is already being fulfilled. That when the Spirit is poured out onto the disciples, they indeed began to be his witnesses. So already this promise in Acts 1.8 is being fulfilled. But here's the amazing impact. In a single event, it supernaturally brought together every nation under heaven. This is the first impact that you see. So right away, people are drawn together. Now that phrase, every nation under heaven, is an expression that's not literal. It's just an expression. But Luke and other ancient people, they knew about other nations that weren't present on that day. So believe it or not, but ancient people, they knew about China. So Luke surely knew about the Chinese. Luke knew about India. He knew about the Germans, the Scythians. None of them were in Jerusalem, but ancient people knew about these other nations around the world. So Luke knew that not every nation under heaven was present literally in Jerusalem. So then what did he mean? Every nation under heaven heard the wonders of God. They were gathered there. What what, what did he mean? He meant every nation under heaven relevant to Israel. Every nation under heaven relevant to God's redemptive history up to that point. Okay, I believe that's what he meant. So these nations, they came from all over that region, all the surrounding areas that would have been interacting with Israel. They were relevant to Israel's history. But everywhere from Mesopotamia to the Mediterranean to North Africa, But the point is, this was a multinational, multilingual crowd. And some of those names in there, we're not going to get into the specific names, but they were even hostile with one another. They had bad history with one another. But this was the group that was present when the Spirit was poured out. And this was the group that was drawn together. Immediately, they were brought together. And Bible scholars have pointed out that the list of nations that Luke gives in Acts 2 is actually awfully similar. In fact, it's an abbreviation of the list given in Genesis 10. There's a table of nations in Genesis 10. Scholars have noticed that they're very similar, if not the same list. Luke just gives an abbreviated version. And why is this important? Well, it's because the table of nations in Genesis 10 are the same nations that came together in one language to build the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. And they did this to make a name for themselves. They're trying to reach heaven on their own, and God judged them for it. And he confused their language, and then he scattered them upon the earth. So the Tower of Babel was the biggest human center project in ancient times. Okay, that list of nations that Luke gives, that's, that's the same list in Genesis 10 that built this tower. It was the biggest human center project in ancient times. Okay, their ultimate purpose for building the tower was to become like God. 
See, what they were doing was utterly self-seeking, self-glorifying. And this is the picture of every human group, tribe, and nation today, ever since. Every group of human beings coming together, they are still doing the same thing. They are self-seeking, self-glorifying. Yes, occasionally groups and even nations can act out of noble interests, noble causes. But there's always this nagging question underneath, right? What's in it for me? How does this benefit me? So what I'm saying is that even if they're united, and in Genesis 11, they were united. They were trying to build this tower. It was a fragile unity. This is the best that man can build. This is the best that man can do in trying to reach up to God. And yet, please hear this. But when Luke mentioned the same list of nations now in Acts 2, what is he saying? What is God saying through Luke? Well, people, and I believe this as well, say that Luke was showing that Pentecost was the reverse of the Tower of Babel. So this is the impact. This is the immediate impact that was happening. But at Pentecost, instead of man trying to reach up to heaven, now God had finally, from heaven, reached down to man and humanity on earth. Instead of God confusing people's languages and scattering them in judgment, what did he do? God spoke the gospel in all their languages and then drew them together. See, it's the the reverse. And now the motivation of people coming together is no longer what's in it for me. Right? What's the benefit to me? But the motivation is Jesus is here and he has sacrificed his life for me. Right? It's a totally different motivation. And so this is the first impact that you see of Pentecost. It changed everything. But the gospel began to get preached in everyone's own tongue and language, empowered by the Spirit, and this brought this supernatural unity. And brothers and sisters, this should be so encouraging to us today because I'm sure you're well aware of all the things that are going on in the world, but given our deep political divisions today, the threats of war, you know, I was listening to a podcast the other day, and this one general in the U.S. said, we are closer to world war than in any previous generation, in the previous generation. We are the closest to world war right now. But given the threats of war, you know, countries are becoming isolated. There's isolationism, there's loneliness, there's outrage. But given all of this, in the midst of all of this, we have a message. Okay, we have this power that can break down barriers and unite people of all different ethnicities, cultures, nationalities. It's the only true unity that this world can have. And if you don't believe that, then I pray that you will understand this year as we work through the book of Acts. The gospel and the power of the Spirit brings unity. It brings unity. You know, we know about the terrible war happening right now in the Middle East right now between Israel and Hamas, and it's increasingly growing. It's involving more and more nations in the area. And yet, in the midst of that devastating war, I recently saw this bright, shining testimony of the power of the gospel and the Spirit, the power to bring unity. But I saw this promo video for a seminary in Israel, and in that promo video, it showed Jewish and Palestinian Christians side by side studying the word together, and they were praying together, and they were even evangelizing together. And it was just amazing. And they even mentioned that. They said, we are Jews and Palestinians, but we are brothers. We are sisters. And so when you see something like that, that should be motivating to us. And I believe that's what Luke is showing us here. But this is to motivate us. 
he's writing to a Roman audience and a Jewish audience, and he's saying, look, you can come together. There's power in the gospel, empowered by the Spirit. If the people of God would just be filled by the Spirit, baptized by the Spirit, and begin to proclaim it, people will come together. There will be unity. So this was the first impact, that the Spirit's outpouring and the declaration of the gospel began to have on the people. It brought this supernatural unity. But not every impact was positive. Because when we read on, there was now a different response. But some people began to mock them, saying they've had too much wine. So look at verses 12 and 13. So yes, some were drawn together in unity. They were amazed at what they were hearing. But others began to say, what does this mean? And they mocked, saying they are filled with new wine. To, so to some people, when the Spirit came upon the disciples, to them, the disciples looked drunk. And this looked especially bad because it was only 9 in the morning. Now, we don't have time to get into this, but there is a peculiar connection between the Spirit's filling and drunkenness in the Bible. And I don't want to just kind of mask over that or cover over that. But for some reason, the Bible makes this peculiar connection in more than one place. And here's one of them in Acts 2. And this makes people uncomfortable, especially given all the devastation that drunkenness brings. Then why does the Bible seem to make this connection between being spirit-filled and being drunk on wine? Okay, why this connection? Well, all I can say is being spirit-filled is both completely different from being drunk on wine, but is also related to being drunk on wine. Okay, so just track with me here. Okay, don't, don't tune me out too quick. But first, it's completely different. The Bible is clear. There is a connection, but the first thing we need to understand is there is a contrast. They are completely different. So Paul makes this very clear in a different passage that, again, connects the two. Ephesians 5.18. Do not get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. So again, this peculiar connection. But here, he makes it very clear. They're completely different activities. Okay, there's a clear contrast between the two. Because if they were the same thing, then Paul wouldn't make any sense. He would be saying, don't get drunk on wine, but get drunk on wine. Right? They're not the same thing. They're clearly two different things. That's why don't do A, do B. So being drunk and being spirit-filled are clearly different. Okay, in what ways? Well, drunkenness is being controlled by a chemical substance, Right? Well, being spirit-filled is being controlled by a person, the Holy Spirit. Drunkenness leads to sinful behavior. Being filled by the Spirit leads to holy behavior. Drunkenness brings addiction and destroys a life. Being spirit-filled brings self-control and flourishes a life. It couldn't be more opposite. But some stop there, and I believe they miss a very important picture that Paul's trying to paint, including Luke. So, okay, fine, they're different. But if that is all Paul and Luke wanted to say, then why the connection? Okay, why mention being spirit-filled as the opposite of being drunk? I mean, Paul could have picked anything, right? Any sinful activity if he just wanted to make a mere contrast. So, for example, Paul could have said, don't be obsessed with ping pong. That's idolatry. Don't be obsessed with ping pong, but be filled by the Spirit. Or maybe don't have pride, don't have lust, don't have envy, don't do any of those things. Rather, be, be, be filled by the Spirit. But he didn't say any of that. Instead, again, very peculiar. 
he said, don't be drunk with wine. Be filled with the Spirit. So are they different? Yeah, they couldn't be more different. And yet there is a strange connection, right? So then what is Paul saying? Okay, what is this connection that he seems to be making? Well, there is a similarity. And for the sake of time, I'm just going to have to be brief. But when a person is drunk on wine and they are filled by the Spirit, and brothers and sisters, again, I'm not talking about something that's unrelated to you. You can be filled by the Spirit today. In fact, you could be filled right now. Just ask. Fill me, Lord. But when you are either drunk on wine or filled by the Spirit, you are what? In either case, you're under the influence of another power. And I think that's the connection. Clearly, the Bible is making some peculiar connection between the two. But in both cases, you're under the influence of another power. And people seek to be under another power, under the influence of a power, whether it's wine or whether it's the spirit, because they're in search of something, right? So why do people grab wine and drink every night? Well, they're in search of something. Maybe they're having a hard time at work. They're seeking contentment. Maybe they just want some escape and find some happiness in the evenings. But they're in search of something. It's usually contentment, some form of happiness or joy. Why do people seek to be filled by the Spirit? It's very much the same thing. You want to have that kind of influence in your life because the Spirit will bring that sense of purpose and joy and happiness and contentment. So it's very similar. And so whether you are filled with the Spirit or whether you are drunk with wine, it will produce this kind of influence, have this influence over your life. And the result can oftentimes be exuberance and joy. Of course, very different. With wine, it's temporary. And it leaves you with a bad hangover, right? But with the Spirit, it is everlasting. And there is no hangover. But there is this kind of exuberance or joy. And going back to Acts 2, maybe that's what the bystanders were seeing. Why do they make that strange comment? Oh, they're drunk. Ha ha, they're drunk. Nine in the morning, what weirdos. Why did they make that connection? Well, it must have been some sort of this exuberance and joy in the disciples where they looked like they were under some influence. Again, they misunderstood it. It was radically different than wine, but there was a connection. So there is a similarity between being drunk on wine and being filled with the spirit, although we shouldn't press that comparison too far because again I want to emphasize they are fundamentally different producing fundamentally different results one you are losing control the other you are gaining more self-control one leads to destruction the other one leads to true life and for the sake of time we're going to stop there and move on to the next point but notice how even through this negative reaction Luke is showing us this profound impact that the spirit's outpouring was having on the people in ways where even their behavior looked different. It looked unusual than what they normally did. But this is what the Spirit can do upon you, right? Have you, have you experienced the Spirit's impact on your life? Even right now, sitting here in church, can you say, yes, the Spirit has impact on my life? And this is how, ABC. Do you see the influence of the Spirit upon your life? So the Spirit's outpouring of Pentecost already had this tremendous impact on the people it brought all different groups of people, even enemies together through the empowered declaration of the gospel. So that's the first way. It also brought the disciples under the direct influence of the spirit, bringing boldness, exuberance, and joy 
So much so, people thought they were drunk. It was very unusual looking. So that was another impact. And as we saw last week, you can have the same impact. Okay, I want to emphasize this point, but the Holy Spirit is also for you. God is offering you this wonderful gift. If you're a believer, you already have him. But he is offering him to you again, to be filled again and again and again. So I want to encourage you, even as we work through the book of Acts, don't forget, you can be spirit-filled. You can be spirit-baptized, which I believe is the first filling of the spirit. After that, you're filled. First, you're baptized, then you're filled. But you can be filled. Just ask, brothers and sisters, even right now. I mean, if you have this hunger inside of you, you're like, you know what, Roy? I hear a lot of what you're saying, but I just want to taste. I want to know what it's like. Then just ask. Amen? Just ask in humility and trust. Just ask the Father. So this is the impact that we see, but there is another impact of the Spirit that I think is even more dramatic. And this is now where we come into Peter and his sermon. But it was the Spirit's impact on Peter. And the reason why I say this is far more dramatic is, think about Peter, but only weeks before Peter had denied Christ. He said, I don't even know him to a bunch of strangers. A little after that, Peter left the ministry and went back to fishing. This is after he saw his Lord crucified on a Roman cross. He didn't know Jesus had risen yet. And completely discouraged, devastated, he went fishing. He went back to his old life. A little after that, he was hiding from the religious authorities, trying to make as little noise as possible. The last thing he wanted was for people to know that he was Jesus' number one disciple. And so this is Peter, but now after being baptized by the Spirit, what is he doing? He stands up in the middle of this square in Jerusalem. Okay, the epicenter of where they persecuted and killed his Lord. And then he does what? He lifted up his voice. Verse 14. Okay, do you see that dramatic change? And brothers and sisters, if you are thinking, you know what, this year, the year of witness, I'm not going to do a thing, <laughs> right? Because that is the last thing I want to do. I am freaked out of my mind when I try to share my faith. Even my family members, let alone coworkers and neighbors. Then I want to encourage you, we could have Peters here. You can be a Peter, very much so. But he began to lift up his voice and he began to proclaim, empowered by the Spirit. So once again, you see that with the disciples declaring the wonders of God in different languages. You now see it with Peter lifting up his voice, declaring the gospel. But repeatedly, Luke is showing the fulfillment of Acts 1.8. When the Spirit comes upon you, you will be my witnesses. You can't separate those two. This year, as we're going to be Jesus' witnesses, you must remember, I need the Spirit's power. When you go into some kind of an evangelistic outreach or you're going to be sharing the gospel at some gathering, you know there are going to be non-Christians there, you have to pray, Lord, fill me with the Spirit. Okay, this is what Luke is emphasizing. You cannot be a witness without the empowerment of the Spirit. So again, you see it with the disciples. Now you see it with Peter. Filled by the Spirit, he's just been baptized. He lifts up his voice and then he begins to declare. He begins to explain what is going on. So look at verse 14 through 16. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. 
So Peter immediately dismissed this question. Are they drunk? He's like, no. I'm not going to even deal with that. No, it's only nine in the morning. And then he reaches all the way back into the Old Testament. And he takes this obscure passage, Joel 2, 28 through 32. And then he begins to explain what you see here today is what Joel said back then. In other words, Pentecost was a fulfillment of Joel's prophecy. This is what Peter is saying. And as he begins to explain the Spirit's outpouring using Joel, he lays out four radical shifts that changes everything. These are the Copernican changes I was talking about earlier. But when the Spirit was poured out, the entire reality and the way they perceive reality itself changed. There was a radical transformation. So here are the four radical shifts. Okay, a radical new age, a radical new relationship with God, a radical new people, and finally a radical new salvation. And in case you're wondering, I don't like the word radical. Okay, personally, I try not to use it too much, but I couldn't think of a better word. Okay, but but when I think about what happened on that day at Pentecost, it really was radical. Again, if you don't know the background and what era we're living in, it's kind of like coming into a movie in the middle. Like it doesn't really mean anything, right? You, you're not really understanding what's going on. But Luke is telling us, okay, this is what's going on. Okay, this is the age that you belong to. So the first thing is, it's a radical new age. Look at verse 17 in the 19 through 20. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. So here Peter, through Joel, was declaring a true reality-changing shift that took place with the Spirit's coming. And here it is. The last days have begun. Starting with Pentecost, we're in the last days. We are in the last days. And in this prophecy of Joel, you can see what the last days are going to be, roughly. But basically, it's from that moment when the Spirit was poured out. So it says it here. God declares, I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. When did that happen? Pentecost. So that's the beginning of the last days. And then, without warning, he goes into all these signs. In the earth below and in the heavens above, Blood and fire, vapor, smoke, the sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood. And what is all that? Suddenly, without warning, he zooms all the way to the very end of the last days. And now he's talking about immediately before Jesus' return. So right in this single prophecy, you see already clearly the last days. When is it? When the Spirit was poured out okay, after Jesus' first coming. And then all the way to Jesus' second coming. When all these signs are going to be happening. These are the last days. And Peter, empowered by the Spirit, was now saying, you're in it now. This is it. It's here. So the last days have begun. Now to us, no doubt this has way less meaning than it did for the Jews in the first century. But for the Jews, this would have been shocking. They would have been like, what? Get out of here, right? It would have been shocking. Because Peter was basically saying, because of Jesus' death and resurrection, and now the outpouring of the Spirit, the beginning of the end is now here. This is what he's saying. In other words, what should happen on the last day, 
on the very last day when Jesus finally comes. And for the Jews, they didn't know it was Jesus, but they just waited for the Messiah. One day the Messiah is going to finally come. The day of the Lord is going to come. When this age ends, Peter is saying the beginning of that is here. We are at the beginning of the end. In other words, we are officially in the last stage of God's plan of salvation. In other words, there are no more stages left in God's plan of salvation. There's nothing left for him to do. He has done it all. It is finished. The only thing left now is to share this gospel to everyone as far and wide as possible until Jesus returns. There's nothing left. See, back in Abraham's day, there was a lot left to happen, right? Even in David, King David's generation, there was a lot left to happen. Even prior to Jesus, right before, when John the Baptist was ministering, there were still, still a number of things to happen, like Jesus' ministry, his death on the cross, his resurrection. But now Peter is saying, this is it. God's plan of salvation is in the final hour. There's nothing left. God has done it all. He has redeemed us. He has come. He has lived. He has died. He's risen again. He has fulfilled every promise. He has poured out the Spirit. That's it. All we have to do is share it now. So this is it. The Spirit's outpouring on Pentecost marked the beginning of the end. But what does that mean exactly? (laughs) Well, let me unpack it a little bit further. But for every Jew, they believe that history was divided into two parts. Okay, this present age, which was marked by sin Sickness, death, no spirit. And there was the last day when the Messiah finally comes and then everyone's resurrected, all the believers come back to life and then he ushers in the age to come. And the age to come will be marked by righteousness, wholeness, resurrection, eternal life. So for the Jew, that's it. Present age, evil, bad, death. Age to come, one day. When Jesus comes to, you know, the Messiah comes to judge the earth, the age to come will be here. Eternal life, good, righteousness, holiness. And Peter was saying, because of what you're seeing today, the beginning of that final age is already here. This is what he's saying. It's already begun. Jesus' resurrection and God's spirit poured out upon his people were two shocking and undeniable signs that the age to come has begun now. Okay, let, let me say it in terms that are maybe more relatable. You know everything we're going to be experiencing in eternity in heaven with God, the new heavens and the new earth, is started. It's here. You are a part of it. Now, it's not fully here, but the early Christians could not deny it's already here. Not fully here, but it's begun. It's already here. And so the age to come, the kingdom of God, the perfect new world, paradise, what we're going to be experiencing for all eternity in perfect bodies, in holiness, with the Lord, is here. It's here. You know, this is why uh, Gordon Fee, he's one of the most respected New Testament scholars, but one time somebody asked him, if you could go back to being a pastor and preaching every Sunday, what would you preach about? A student asked him, and without missing a beat, he said, I was set about with a single passion to help a local body of believers recapture the New Testament church's understanding of themselves as an end times community. He's like, that's all I would talk about. You are in the end. You are in the last days. You are an end time community. The final age has already begun. It's kicked off. You are a part of it. That should define everything you do, everything you are. 
It should shape everything we say, everything we do. So think about your relationships, how we relate to each other. Okay, what do we do for the poor? How do you handle money? How do you relate to the government? Okay, well, what do you do when you gather with your family and some of them aren't believers? I mean, everything you can imagine, it is shaped by this perspective. We're in the last days. The age to come has already begun. And so this is a radical new perspective. It should change everything. And so this is the first shift that the outpouring of the Spirit brought. Okay, this is what Peter is clearly declaring when he stood up and raised his voice, saying, Joel's prophecy is now fulfilled. We are in the last days now. So that's the first thing. The, the, the next few things, I'm just going to mention them briefly because we'll circle back and flesh it out more in the weeks to come. But another thing is a radical new relationship with God. A radical new relationship with God. But look at verse 17, the second part. God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Peter is still quoting Joel. But this is a radical new relationship with God because when Joel and Peter said poured out, do you know what poured out means? Well, first of all, what was poured out? God's very own presence, his very own spirit. But what does that mean, poured out? Well, here's the way I say it. It means abundance, permanence, and prevalence. Okay, what does that mean? Abundance. Now, anywhere and everywhere throughout the earth, you can cry out, and God is right there. There is an abundance of God's presence on the earth. Abundance. Okay, not just like, oh, I got to go all the way to Israel. Maybe one day I'll take a trip, and then if I go to that holy site, then I'm going to meet with God. No, you can meet with God right here. You can go home, go to your closet, meet with God. You can meet with God in your car when you drive. There is an abundance. Number two, there is permanence. Poured out. Okay, if you pour out orange juice onto the floor, it's very hard to scoop it back up and put it in, right? You squeeze out that toothpaste, you cannot put that toothpaste back in. God has poured out his spirit. He's not leaving. He's not going back. He has been poured out. Okay, let's be clear about that. It's not a thing. He himself has been poured out now on the earth. So permanence. And then finally, prevalence. Okay, he is everywhere. It is not just here. It is not just there, but it is everywhere. He is everywhere. So there is abundance of his presence. There is no limit to it. Okay, that's the way I should have said it earlier, but there is no limit to his presence. Okay, he's not going. He's not leaving anymore, and he's everywhere. So that's what poured out means. And so this is a radical new relationship, brothers and sisters. You need to understand the privilege that we have living in these times. You know, I mentioned this last week, but all throughout the scriptures, starting from Genesis all the way to Revelation, you see God's heart. But the entire focus, the entire purpose of his redemptive plan isn't to just forgive us. Yes, that's part of it. It isn't just to clean us up and make us whole again. Yes, that's part of it. But ultimately, what he wants is he wants glory but how do we give him glory? By being in this relationship with him forever where we are enjoying him forever. Can we glorify God? How? By being with him and enjoying him forever. And so that's what he's seeking. He's seeking this relationship. And so this is the second thing that shifted when the spirit was poured out. Can we have this new access to God? So brothers and sisters, think about the last time you took advantage of that. 
So again, I mean, do you seek the Lord today when you go home, as you're driving home? I mean, are you going to be communicating with God? I hope so. I mean, anywhere and everywhere, you have immediate access to the living God. He gave us the scriptures. Why? So that we may know him. Right? There's a purpose and a goal for the scriptures. It's not an end in itself. But God gave us the word. Why? So that we may fellowship and know him. Jesus said that in John 5. He said, you search the scriptures. You memorize the scriptures. Thinking that in them you find eternal life. But they point to me. And yet you refuse to believe. You refuse to come to me and believe. And so even Jesus pointed out the end purpose of scripture. So do you know God? If you don't know God, brothers and sisters, this is just religion. If you don't know God, the Bible is just a book. If you don't know God, then sitting here has very little meaning to you. Because you don't know God. You got to know God. And we are now living in the age where you can access him immediately. There is an abundance. There is a permanence. There is a prevalence to his spirit, his presence everywhere. So that's the second thing. Okay, quickly. Number three. Here's a third shift. A radical new people. A radical new people. Look at verse 17 through 18. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. So this is staggering. And I'm not going to say everything on these verses today. We're going to actually talk more about it next week. But at a minimum, by quoting Joel, Peter was saying, what you see today, the spirit being poured out, Here's what, it, here's what it means. The spirit people have arrived. The spirit people are here now. Because we live in the last days. It's not just, oh yeah, Jews and non-Jews. It's not just people who worship God and don't worship God. No. Now there are spirit people and not spirit people. The spirit people have arrived. And what makes someone a spirit person? Is it coming to church, having a big fat Bible? Is it wearing long flowing robes, doing yoga? hanging around coffee shops. I mean, what makes you spiritual? What makes you a spirit person? It's nothing other than having the Holy Spirit in you and you being under the influence of the Spirit. That's it. And so this was radical. Again, I have to use that word, radical. Because in the Old Testament, there were only three kinds of people who ever had the privilege of being under the Spirit, being dwelt by the Spirit. There were only three kinds of people prophets, priests, and kings. That was it. Nobody else in the Old Testament had that privilege of receiving the Spirit, being empowered by the Spirit. But now, because of Pentecost, it's all changed. Every true believer is a spirit person. Amen? We are all spirit people. Ben Witherington, he's a Bible scholar, he said, throughout Acts, the presence of the Spirit is the distinguishing mark of Christianity. It is what makes a person a Christian. Did you hear that? I'll say it again. Throughout Acts, the presence of the Spirit is what makes a person a Christian. So ultimately, that's the simplest answer to what makes you a Christian. I have the Holy Spirit living in me. God literally lives in me. Even more than, oh, I know the Bible. Even more than I could repeat the gospel back to you. Those things are important. But the reality is you have the spirit in you. You are a spirit person. That is what makes you a true believer. And the mark of spirit people that Luke zeroes in on is this ability to prophesy. So it's very interesting. But he could have picked out a lot of different things. But 
he hones in, he zeroes in on this ability to prophesy. That is, according to Luke, the mark of a spirit person. Now, some Bible scholars like Martin Luther, he saw prophecy as kind of an overall heading and dreams and visions and speaking in tongues kind of came under prophecy. He said all of that is prophecy. You can see it that way, or you can see prophecy as just one of. Dreams, visions, tongues are different things. But clearly, Luke pointed out this kind of prophetic gifting as a mark of being a spirit person. And I'm not going to say anything more on that. It, that could be an actual spiritual gift, a charismatic gift of speaking direct words from God that don't contradict Scripture, is always in line with Scripture, but you're speaking it. Or it could merely be you just proclaiming the gospel. Okay, there are different ways to understand that. But every single now spirit-filled believer is a prophet. You're a prophet. And notice who is a prophet here. It says sons and daughters young and old, male servants and female servants. In other words, people of different social standing. And so, okay, this would have been mind-blowing again. Because for the first time now in the history of God's redemptive plan, everybody, doesn't matter. You could be a male, you could be a female, you can be old, you can be young, you could be a special person, you could be... A very average person, doesn't matter. High standing, low standing, you can be filled by the Spirit and you could be a prophet for God. This is what Luke is saying. Or I should say Joel is saying. And so I want to especially point out how twice, if you look at the prophecy of Joel, it mentions the outpouring of the Spirit. I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. And then he mentions sons and daughters. And then he mentions this ability to have dreams and visions. And then he mentions female and male servants. So he mentions twice, and then he goes back to pouring out the Spirit. So it's kind of like this structure of like A, B, C, B, A. But he mentions twice there women and men. And this would have been significant in that day. Women and men, very significant. Because the Jews standing there, they would have been like, what? Women? Because for the most part, women never spoke on behalf of God. But I just want to emphasize this point because even today, I think there's some misunderstanding. But in our church, we believe and we uphold biblical headship in the home and in the church. We uphold male eldership. And yet, that does not mean in any way that women have no place to speak forth God's word. Because right here, it says here, sons and daughters, male servants and female servants will have this prophetic kind of ministry. They will speak forth the words of God. And so ever since that Pentecost day, God has used and will continue to use women to speak his words to others. So I just want to make that clear. So especially if you're a woman here, it does not mean at all that, oh yeah, I can't teach, I can't speak, I can't. No, not at all. God has anointed you. God has filled you so that you will speak forth the words of God. And God expects you to do it. Hey, God expects you to do it. Now, of course, there's order and there's proper place for that. And again, we uphold biblical headship in the family and the church. But God expects men and women, speak forth the word of God. God has anointed you. Speak it forth. And so this is staggering. It doesn't matter who you are. Everyone now is a spirit person with this kind of prophetic ministry. Again, I'll unpack that more next week. We'll get into the gifts, the actual gifts. 
But that is the third shift. And then the final shift is there is a now a new salvation. Amen? There is a, there is a radical new salvation, Acts 2.17. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall now be saved. And there, Peter, he makes a stunning comparison. But when he says Lord, in the original prophecy of Joel that he's quoting, the word Lord is literally Yahweh. Is literally Yahweh. But here in Acts 2.17, when Peter requoted that verse, he used the word Lord implying Jesus. He used the Greek word that pointed to Jesus. It's the same word that was repeatedly used for Jesus. And so in the most subtle way, Peter was equating Yahweh in the prophecy of Joel with Jesus. Okay, this is the Lord. If you call upon this Lord, you will be saved. And that's it. Okay, now there is this radical new salvation that is by grace through faith. All you have to do is just call upon the Lord. Amen? And I'm not going to say very much more on that because all of next week and the week after that, we're going to be looking at the actual sermon now where he un, you know, unveils the gospel in a beautiful way. But he talks about Jesus' ministry his death, his resurrection, his ascension. But this is the radical new salvation that is in the name of the Lord, Yahweh, which is now Christ. And so, brothers and sisters, you know, we're going to come to a close, but the only thing I have left to say is, if this is the age we live in now, okay, this is radical. And if you don't think it's radical, I want to encourage you to go back and restudy this passage, read some books on it, but this is radical. But if this is the age that we live in now, then what are you investing in? What are you investing in? You know, as we move into 2024, as we begin to try to live out the things that we're reading in the book of Acts, I mean, what are you going to be focused on this year? What are you going to be investing in? Something that is passing away or something that has begun now that will last forever? I mean, it's a very simple question. But I remember not that many years ago, uh, automakers announced, it might have been maybe more than five years ago, but I remember being shocked because automakers announced that they will no longer be installing CD players into cars. How many of you guys remember CD players used to be inside cars? <laughs> Do you guys remember that? But you would sit in your car and there's like a CD player where you like open up your little album of CDs and slide a CD in. But finally, automakers said, no more. So Honda, Toyota, Ford, they all announced we're not going to put CD players anymore into our cars. And so after hearing that, imagine going home and going, okay, um, sure, whatever. I'm going to invest in all these companies that make CDs, and I'm going to buy up their stock. And that's going to be my number one investment this year. After hearing just a moment ago that no, mo no more CD players in all these cars. Well, if you truly don't understand the significance of what Peter is saying, what Joel said, of the outpouring of the Spirit and the age that we're living in now, and then you go on living your life in any which way, you know, focus on my work, focus on relationships, focus on all, all these things that God wants to give, then that is exactly what you're doing. You're investing everything in something that is passing away. And so here's my question again. What are you investing in? My encouragement is let's invest in this age that has come and that is yet to come by spreading this gospel message as far and as wide as possible. Let's be witnesses this year, amen?
Okay, let's just come before the Lord. Let's bow our heads. You know, unfortunately, I don't know a whole lot about investing, but I've heard enough stories to know that for most people, you only know an investment is bad until you lose everything. Until then, people just don't seem to hear, right? Oh, you better be careful. Don't invest in that. Don't put all your money there. You might lose it all. And for some reason, people just can't hear it until they actually lose it all. And then they go, oh, that was a bad investment. Well, my prayer and hope is that, brothers and sisters, please do not do that with your life. Do not get to the end of your life and say, oh, that was a bad investment. It all burned up. It's all gone. But right now, most of you are on the younger side. Some of us not so young. But it's never too late. We can make the wise investment. When Luke wrote the book of Acts, he said, Theophilus, I'm writing these things so that you may have certainty of the things that you have heard. He wanted Theophilus and anyone reading his book to just know with certainty. These things are true. The age of the Spirit, the last days are really here. God has commissioned you to be a witness. He has poured out His Spirit. This is all true. So what are you going to invest in? What are you going to do? I know that's what Luke was wanting. He, he, was, he was an evangelist. He was driving that home throughout his book. So what are you going to do? Knowing these things. So let's just come before the Lord and um, just for a moment as we do every Sunday, let's just Let's just ask God, God, help, help me to understand a little bit more. Okay, being in the age of the Spirit, I mean, what does that mean? Having this universal access to you, this abundance of God's presence. This kind of equalization of everyone everyone now is on equal ground we have all received the spirit we, we all have this kind of prophetic ministry to declare the gospel to speak forth the words of God men and women young and old rich and poor yeah I mean what it what does all of this mean Let, let's just come before the Lord and let's pray let's ask God to reveal himself